When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hello, I'm Greg Jenner. I'm the host of You're Dead to Me, and we are back for Series 5. Yes, it's the comedy show that takes history seriously. And on this series, get ready to hear about Frederick the Great of Prussia with Stephen Fry, no less. I'm just thrilled at this history lesson. Or learn a fair old amount, that's a pharaoh joke, about ancient Egyptian queen Hatshepsut with Kima Bob. What a vibe. And take a stitch in time as we discuss the Bayer Tapestry with Lou Sanders. Ooh, I'm a gog. Plus we have many other lovely historical subjects where we'll be joined by top historians. That's You're Dead to Me with new episodes every Friday. Johnny good, isn't it? ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you love to be remembered as the person who gives the best birthday gifts, I'm here to tell you that 1-800-Flowers.com is your ultimate birthday gifting destination. 1-800-Flowers has thoughtful and artfully created options that are guaranteed to deliver the best birthday surprise. Shop thousands of unique gifts at 1-800-Flowers.com for exclusive offers and great values. To order today, visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. Mirror man, mirror man, you twist and turn my mind until I don't know who I am. Mirror man. Good morning and welcome to a new edition of the Arsenal Opinion Podcast. We are in an international week um, and it's been painful. We're coming out the back end. There's not a lot of Arsenal to talk about, but today I'm joined by a special guest. Uh, Rob, welcome to the show. Do you want to tell everybody who you are and what you do? Thanks, Pete. Yeah, hi, uh, I'm Rob. Uh, I am a, a digital sport consultant. I um, previously worked in uh, Premier League at uh, Manchester City in a role that kind of bridged their commercial and digital departments before that worked at Sky Sports, Talk Sport, and so at the kind of intersection of, of digital and sponsorship, and now uh, stepping out on my own during a, a global pandemic, which is ideal. But um, yeah, so looking forward to the conversation about, I suppose, what, what's going on in the marketplace at the moment. So yeah, tell us a little bit about um, your, your time at Manchester City. They are kind of digital trailblazers. Uh, in the space, a lot of advanced stuff going. I think they uh, they kind of moved football content on to a to a new level, and everyone else is like paying catch up now. But yeah, t- tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think you have to go back to their uh, ownership came into place in kind of two thousand eight, and really around kind of twenty eleven twelve. They once they'd invested on the field, they realised that commercially, in order to really compete with their peers, and in their mind, that wasn't just. Man United, Arsenal, Liverpool, but actually it's Barca, Real, Bayern Munich, that they need to operate differently. They knew that their numbers, purely on a fan base level, were not really going to stack up. So they invested heavily on the digital side and, and really pushed their innovation strategy as being their key sales tool, if you like. And so they were the first club really to go big onto YouTube uh, and then the other platforms subsequently from that. And so they 
they brought in people like myself that had more of a, a media and digital background to help their commercial team in really understanding what the opportunity might be. And you're right that over the last few years, a number of clubs have kind of followed suit and there are, you know, some are doing better than others. Um, and I think that the, the current situation that everyone's in has kind of accelerated that even more with the need to communicate with fans uh, on a regular basis uh, when they're not going to be in the stadium. So it, it's been an interesting last 12, 18 months, I think, in that space. And, and there's lots of interesting things that are coming out of that that will kind of move forward over the next five, 10 years. So when, um, when you talk about international fan bases, like how does a, how does a club go about measuring that? Like what, 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 there's, a, there's always a debate online about what a true fan is. Like what's the, what's the scientific measurement for a true fan in the eyes of a commercial, uh, you know, in the eyes of a commercial director at a club? Sure. In the eyes of commercial director, let's face it, the, the definition of a fan is the biggest number you can find because ultimately it needs to stack up against your competition. So in a lot of cases, it's, it's, there's a variety of metrics you can use, whether it's followers on, on social is obviously a big tool from that, but you've got big, um, data companies and, and kind of, uh, research and measurement. Uh, agencies like Nielsen, who you may have heard of, yeah. that do a hell of a lot of work on really trying to identify what they feel is a truer number that, that takes viewing figures and data into consideration. So they're normally one of the industry standards in uh, helping clubs like Man United claim they've got a billion fans worldwide. There's kind of a, it's somewhat of a middle ground really around kind of followers and people that are maybe interested or would kind of look into a, a club and its content. Uh, I think, you know, Clubs like City would would look at some of their classes, the fan funnel, and, and the way that you try and convert fans to to start at one end, and, and you try and kind of get them into the the top end of the funnel, where there would be people that may be interested in your content or may may be aware of you, and then your your role as a a content team and a marketing team is to gradually try and push people down that funnel, so moving them from I've heard of your club, I'm vaguely interested to I would actively seek out content to then I might buy a product or service or a shirt or a scarf to I, I would buy a ticket and moving them into that hardcore super fan route is the obviously the end game because ultimately they are your your biggest spenders and your biggest kind of engagement area. So when um when when you talk about that funnel, I guess the funnel is very different for a local fan that might be spending a thousand pounds on a season ticket, buying a shirt, buying two pies a game or an, and a pint or whatever it is. Like when, um, when, a, when a big club looks at its foreign fan base, what are the, like, what, what are the objectives? Because it's, it's, it's never clear where the revenue streams are, right? You, shirt sponsorship, it, the money doesn't always go directly to a club, but like, what are the kind of low lift, basket items that you would be looking at from a Korean fan base or so like what how, how do how do you even go about quantifying and understanding that, that type yeah of I thing? suppose it, it's yeah it's it's what do you class as success and and so in a lot of cases it is commercial dollars so you know you want to try and grow a fan base in a particular market because that can lead to potentially sponsors coming in from that market um you know there's no secret as to why clubs will go on pre-season tours to far-flung lands to try and engage and develop a fan base in those places because that will help them commercially in attracting sponsors from that place, but also to increase the potential viewing figures 
in that area that that benefits you know benefits everyone, but but the club in that association, and therefore their ability to to drive commercial numbers off the back of that. So you know, there's and again, it's it's around understanding, I suppose, what is of value. So it's around creating followers and then fans from that. I remember going to an event a long time ago at Arsenal. Um, or it was it was an industry event, but uh, the former head of content from Arsenal was was there talking about the fact that the content that they're creating um, was going out to the ninety nine percent of fans that would never go to the stadium, and that's kind of who they're looking to communicate with. And I put my hand up and and basically said in frustration, well, "What about me? I'm a season to get older. I have been for over thirty years. I'm arguably your biggest customer. I spend over you know a thousand pounds a year with you, and you're not. Does that not matter?" And the reality is they kind of know that that money is going to be there year after year after year and the growth opportunity is in, in new spaces, in creating new fans and then building up a bigger audience, particularly now in this kind of digital ecosystem where there are ways to start to monetize that audience, you know, across a variety of different platforms, but at a much lower level. So if you can engage hundreds of thousands or millions of people that might spend one, two, three, five dollars a time, that starts to become a really good revenue stream for you. So, you know, there's a, there's a variety of reasons why clubs want to try and grow their fan base globally. But and most of the time, let's be blunt, it comes back to delivering dollars at the end of the day for them. When, you're, um, when clubs are looking to expand into new markets, is that, uh, do, they, do they decide that at an individual level where they see opportunity or is there... Um, is there a partnership with the Premier League? Like, where, like, who set, who sets the marching orders for where are the hot markets in the world? Like, or is it, a, you know, how, how does that, how does that work? I don't, I, I, I don't think it's rocket science. I think the reality is at the moment, if you, if you ask all clubs out there, you know, what are your three target markets? The reality is they're going to be China and India because they're the two biggest markets, and America because they're the richest market. That's basically it. You know, at the end of the day, you know, if you if you if you somehow crack China and India, that's two and a half billion people. So that's that's a real opportunity to you know you can make some success over there, and then America is obviously a, a huge commercial opportunity as well. So I don't think it's uh, that you know there are always going to be small pockets and small anomalies somewhat with kind of fan base growth, but a lot of the times that's that's driven actually the other side by players. At the end of the day. You know, Arsenal have got probably a decent following in in Africa because their heritage with African players. In the same vein that you know, the, the uh, Man City have got a, a decent following in Argentina or in Algeria because they recently signed you know Riyad Mahrez. There was a big uptake in the the kind of pickup of Algerian and North African fans to their social channels as, as a result, and then that then kind of dictates what your content plan is off the back of that. And do you need to? create content in specific languages or specific tone of voice to suit a particular market. And it's not the strategy is somewhat developed by or driven by the players and the, and the performance side rather than the kind of commercial and the marketing side. Right. And then, um, you know, moving, moving on because um, the, the world of football from a commercial perspective is very different to what it is right now. Uh, <clears throat> I probably, you know, I think most people know the answer to it, but like getting a more scientific thing, like how is, um, how has the pandemic affect the commercial world of football over the last 12 months? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges was, so obviously with no fans in the, in the stands, 
um, a big challenge to a number of teams was how do you deliver the value back to your sponsors that you had contractually agreed to, but in a lot of cases, they weren't physically able to deliver those assets, those those kinds of execution. And so the challenge is that um, needing to pivot to digital to be able to deliver some some new opportunities is a challenge for a number of clubs because they just don't have the resource with the experience in that space. I suppose that's that's where I I look to pitch myself and the opportunities around people like myself in that space. But that's still a challenge because there were a number of factors that were really kind of challenging for for clubs. And you've only got to see that the the end result for that in most cases was branded tarps around the around the side of the field with with logos on that was kind of the the extent to a, a lot of that that kind of innovation was was that was the the end result and i think that thankfully you know from a, an arsenal supporting hat i think that the club have done quite well in in kind of getting past that initial stage and starting to develop new content strands new executions new ways to communicate with the fan base that ultimately they can bring brands along on that journey and deliver that value back to them. And Rory Smith has got a a really interesting piece in the New York Times at the moment about um, branding in football and like the shift to like streetwear culture. Like who, who out of the, the last year or the last two years has really stood out as commercially progressive and you know, like, what what trends do you think Arsenal should be paying attention to? Well, to be fair to Arsenal, I think they're doing quite well in some of those ones. You've got to look at the the collaboration, the kind of fashion trend that's going on now, that was really driven, I suppose, three or four years ago by PSG and their link up with uh, Nike, and in particular the Jordan brand. That kind of took uh, football kits and and cult- that that kind of cultural element back out there. And so, you know, Arsenal and Adidas's recent stuff with 424, obviously through the Hector Bellerin relationship was great. Um, Adidas themselves have done some bigger partnerships with uh, Parley, I think it is, the streetwear brand. Um, and uh, so there's, there's a number of bits and pieces where I think Adidas in particular have done very well in, in their kind of diversification to try and reach out to those kind of newer markets, newer audiences, younger demographics that, that maybe aren't, huge football fans, but love the kind of cultural thing. It, it kind of plays in well, I suppose, to an extent with that EA Sports generation as well and, and the, the kind of gaming generation and that crossover that that they're kind of using new new elements to kind of be the gateway into top-level football. So for some people, it's fashion. For some people, it's gaming. Some, it's music. You know, and, and a lot of clubs at the very top level are trying to find those new avenues as the launch pad to try and grow those fan bases. Yeah, it's quite interesting watching the development of the streetwear side of football because, you know, in London 10 years ago, if you rolled up into a advertising agency wearing a football shirt, you'd be kicked out for, you know, working in New York. You you turn up to like house parties and people are wearing football shirts. Like it's a it's a it's a point of pride um these days and a like almost a statement about who you are as a person in the most positive of, of ways now and like I, I don't know where the shift came but football is football is not a, a, a thuggish pastime like maybe it was or, or, I felt it was perceived that way 12 years ago like being a season ticket holder wasn't a cosmopolitan thing to do you know I, I think that it's because 
this might sound a bit grandiose, but I think because the, the players at the top level now have grown up as kind of digital and social media natives, it's helped to kind of just broaden the reach and the appeal of the game. And so I think it's brought down some of those barriers that, that maybe would have been there 10, 12 years ago. But it's just kind of more, people are more familiar with the the products and, and therefore it's just kind of slightly more accepted, I think, in that space. But you're right, you know, you you wouldn't have, have walked around in, in in some of those kits a long, a long time ago in, in any kind of professional sense. Um, but I just think that the, the clubs and, the, and the, the manufacturers are doing a better job at creating a whole range of, of products that, that just suit a wider a range rather than the hardcore hooligan. And, um, you know, talking about the modern fan, uh, like I heard a statistic a few years ago that the average age of a Premier League season ticket holder was 43, um, which I'm guessing a, a, lot, a lot of that comes down to the, the extortionate price that you have to pay to, to, to gain tickets and people tend to hold on to them. But um, do you envision a challenge coming from football where there's a generation that sort of catch their matches in bite-sized clips and comps that they share around YouTube, more interested perhaps in, in the gamer side of things? Like, uh, is, is, football coming, is football heading towards a reckoning for fans in the stadium, like much in the way that Italian football had that problem in the, in the early 2000s? So, uh, to an extent, yes, but I, I think that in general, football will be okay. So, you know, the one thing the pandemic has shown is how much people still want to go to games and how much, how important fans are to be in the stadiums. And I think you still have that where possible, the generational pull of parents taking children to games and, and falling in love with it and, and then growing up and going through as, as I was very fortunate to you know, in the in the mid to late eighties, and developed through, and I look forward to taking my children as and when, or if they're ever interested. Um, but there is going to be. I mean, I think you sometimes as well. We kind of get a bit caught up in the in what the kind of UK fandom is versus global fandom, and I think it's two very different things. So, you know, the average football fan actually is not nowhere near as tribal as the kind of British fan is around their teams. They follow players more than teams. The average football fan, I saw some data a while ago, followed something like 11 players and five teams on social. And it's that kind of particular then going back to the, the, the video gaming and FIFA. I think that's a big part of it as well on a global level that, that I think it's the same issue that the NBA have to an extent where it's kind of star-driven league and, and young fans gravitate towards personalities and players rather than teams to an extent. But I do think that on a local level, you're still going to have that pull to want to go to the games, be a part of it, particularly if it's traditional within your your family or your friendship circle that people are still going to want to go. But it is going to be reliant on the finances stacking up and there will come a, a tipping point where, you know, the, the demand will start to drop off because pricing is just too high. Do you think that there's, um, do you think there's going to be a shift towards um, safe standing? And like bringing people in that way on two, three hundred pound a year tickets. Where possible, Arsenal have a big issue with that, though. Unfortunately, the the the, st- the stadium was developed at a time, and it was you know of the moment in the in those mid two thousands where it was designed as an entertainment venue, not a football stadium. So they realised that the best way to maximise the revenues was through as many corporate seats, as many boxes. And, you know, the best kind of sight lines and, that, that you could have. 
the reality is it's not been designed as a football stadium. And so one of the challenges is that the lower tier is too uh, flat for safe standing. So they'd have to do some work on literally rebuilding and restructuring that lower tier to make sure that each level or each row of seating is high enough uh, from the one in front so that people can actually see. So safe standing is a big issue with that stadium at the moment that I don't know how they're going to get around. There are having other issues where they're trying to kind of correct that. So recently, because they've been really struggling to sell the corporate boxes, um, you know, they, they've had to turn those into kind of bigger lounges and, and kind of corporate general comp- corporate seatings. Because the reality is that when they when the stadium was built and designed, you know, uh, corporate hospitality was a huge thing. But you know, since the late 2010s, laws have come in, particularly in the UK, that have really clamped down on big banks and, and law firms, whatever, splurging loads of money on effectively, you know, hospitality or bribing their potential client base. And so those banks, along with their own physical uh, financial situations, just don't have the cash to, to drop 50 grand a year. 100 grand a year on a, on a corporate box. So there's some real challenges for Arsenal in particular in how they go about reworking and reimagining the stadium for the modern football fan, bearing in mind that three miles down the road, they've obviously had a blank sheet of paper with, with more knowledge and understanding to be able to do that and have created a, a, a stadium, obviously for now, for the now, right? And, and you know, it, it is thought to be one of the best stadiums in the world, and it should be because every new stadium that's built should be the best stadium in the world because you have the learnings of everything else that's come before it. Yeah, the um, the getting young people into the stadium, it's it's, it's and it's not even just um, it's not even just to secure future revenue, just the energy, like the yeah. the art. Uh, I can't remember what they're called the Arsenal Chance Kids. They're all about 16, 17, and they, you know, they make up all their songs. They go to the games together. They don't have to be with uh, a parent. It's like, we should have 3,000 of them. They should take over a corner. It should be the singing corner. Like, atmosphere in stadiums is so important. And, um, I, you know, I wonder if Arsenal are going to try and address that. What are, you, um, what are your thoughts on, like, post-pandemic football? Do you think, is, is there any concern that people are not going to want to go back? Or do you think that... People are going to go to every single game, and there will never be an empty seat in the stadium uh, for the next ten years. I, I think that there there will be a lot of goodwill at the moment around going back to the games. People want to go back. They want to have that feeling of you know the exhilaration of goals going in, hopefully, and, and celebrating and moaning with the people around them. Uh, I, I I don't know personally. I don't think there's going to be a huge drop off. I think from what I understand, they're hoping that the stadium is going to be full at the start of next season. Um, and, um, you know, all being well, the way that the vaccine's been rolled out here in the UK, there's no reason why that can't happen. Um, and hopefully, yes, you just, you just don't know. A large part of that is still going to be dependent on team performance. And, you know, you wonder how the last 12 months, 18 months would have progressed if people were in the stands, whether the kind of on-field performance may or may not have accelerated any other change that hasn't happened because you haven't had the, the disgruntled fan base behind the manager. Yeah, it's um, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting what comes off the back of it, and it's football could go one of two ways. It could go the could go the way of Germany, where they recognise early the the problem is getting young fans into the stadium, and they they try and address it so it's not a really big problem in ten years' time. Or I wonder whether um, they because we've got so many American owners um, in the Premier League now. I, 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 
at the end of my road is um, the Barclays Center for the Brooklyn Nets. And you you go in there and it it's they've up-leveled every single part of the experience. It's craft food, craft drinks, thousand bo- thousand dollar bottles of champagne. I wonder whether as Premier League football gets bigger, the stadium experience becomes even more elite, more detached from the working class fan that used to make football a bit more special. It's it's a it's a big situation they need to kind of address here is to really understand who is that target market and, and how they do it because they've obviously moved away from, you know, rightly or wrongly, football's moved away from being the local community feel at the top end anyway, on the Premier League level. Yeah. But it's not about serving your local community. These are big multinational businesses. And I know that, uh, you know, particularly over in the States, so uh, I know that the LA Clippers are looking into a, a new arena, ideally for them. And there's a lot of talk about the, how they pitch that and whether actually a small arena, so the traditional NBA arena is somewhere between twelve and 18,000 seaters. But actually, would it be more beneficial for them to go for something smaller like 8,000, but real luxury, high quality in all aspects? And so, you know, that, there's that kind of situation. That's the same way to an extent that, that Italy is going, where yeah, they've moved away. The same, didn't they? Exactly, right? So Juve have moved away from you know, an 80,000 cavernous bowl that no one turned up with into a 40,000-seater, you know, rocking night out, if you like. Milan, both Milan teams are obviously going through a process at the moment, trying to finalise a new stadium, and they'll be downsizing to probably something around the 50,000, 60,000 mark. And, and so is that the, you know, at the moment, demand is such here in the UK that there isn't that need to downsize. But finding that optimum level of experience for versus revenue is going to be, key moving forward um but you know the, there's still enough demand it seems to be at most premier league teams and above that there's no real drive at the moment to really kind of shift the the, the fundamental status of, of what a stadium does and, and, and what they need it to be but you're right i think that the opportunity actually i think it, it changes tack slightly but it's around the same subject is going to be more around women's football how that's integrated how that develops. And that's really where that opportunity is to think differently about that experience and how that kind of is, is kind of integrated into or alongside the men's game. There's a real, you know, it's a real launch pad moment here in the UK with the women's super league. Um, But there are still some fundamental issues that need to be addressed around that with stadiums, because uh, basically aside from Man City, every team is a secondary tenant at at their stadium. So they're kind of, pushed around by you know whoever owns it around when they can play their games and it's it's not that easy to to create their kind of home environment and experience and so that's really where you start to have those same conversations around if they are able to develop their own home ground or if they're able to to move into the men's stadium and and regularly play games with bigger crowds what does that experience look like that's where you're going to be able to provide a, a younger fan base with a first entry point into high level football and and, do, and try out some new tech and some new kind of standard practices to to develop through that that will hopefully go through the whole game. Yeah, it'd be interesting with women's football because you know playing in the men's stadium is would be nice, but ultimately playing in if the stadiums aren't full, they can feel very empty. Like the the Emirates Stadium with forty thousand people in it, which we saw at times towards the end of the Wenger reign. Felt empty, felt horrible. 
So it's um, like, how do you, um, and I, I think there's a correlation between people watching on TV to, you know, you, you want to watch a, a, a full stadium. So it's like, how do, how do they navigate that challenge and, and make it feel like there's a, there's an atmosphere at these games, but it's promising that the league is going ahead now and that the women are getting the deserved investment for the output and the Arsenal team's quite good. So, yeah, I mean, there are ways to do it. You know, I think it's uh, up in, in Canada, I think in uh, Vancouver, they've got a, a huge stadium that they play their MLS games at and, and I think they used it for the uh, Winter Olympics. But they they regularly basically co- close off the, the top two tiers and just open up the bottom tier. And aesthetically, they do it in a way where it's not just as simple as tarping off the seats, but they're, they're able to find a way where it looks, you know, aesthetically like it's supposed to be there. So there are ways that you can get creative with with making a cavernous stadium feel intimate. But you're right that there has to be a baseline attendance there to make it worthwhile and, and, and valuable and, and feel tight and close-knit within that. So from an Arsenal point of view, you know, they need to be averaging probably 12,000, 15,000 fans in that lower tier to be able to deliver that kind of experience. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how many tickets they could sell because, um, you know, what we had, 30,000 in the stadium for a, for a kids' cup final or a semi-final back in the day, I remember. So, you know, like it, when when the stadium's in the middle of the city, um, you know, people have got spare time. Um, it'd be interesting to see how many people show up when um, sure. when that when that kicks back in, and if people are just like, I want to see live sport, just get me in there. Um, not taking it for granted. Uh, so, want to talk um, shift shift on to like talking about TV deals because obviously the Sky deal with the Premier League. Um, was jeopardized because there was no football and there was a lot of back and forth talk about um, how they would rescue it or whether they'd have to give money back. Um, what what I would like to talk about is you've got these big tech giants that are all pushing content as part of their packages. Like, how how is Sky holding on to the Premier League at the moment? Why hasn't an Amazon, a Google, a Facebook? even the Netflix pushed to get Premier League football as part of their bundle. And do you see that as a, as, as a future? It's a really interesting time for all this. I mean, you look at the wider kind of sports landscape and what's going on. Obviously, the NFL have just signed their deal and a portion of that has gone to Amazon. Um, Facebook have come out recently and basically said that they're not going to get into a major rights deal anymore. They They realise that they can make, you know, enough money out of uh, kind of syndicating content or helping to push lower tier sports, basically where it costs them nothing and they make a load of money out of the advertising revenue. So they don't need to worry about that. Um, Amazon is an interesting one, but there's still, at the end of the day for them, it's still a retail play. It's still an opportunity for them to try and drive subscriptions to Amazon Prime and their ideal scenario is to be very targeted around key retail events and just pour a load of money into those specific times, and that's it. So last season with the Premier League, with their Premier League coverage, it focused around effectively two match days, one that happened to be right near uh, uh, Black Friday and one that was right near Christmas. And um, that made a huge difference to them. And so it's you know they obviously have the data at hand to know 
how efficient their kind of spend is and what it what it does. So it may well be that that down the road they realise that yeah we're going to push the button and really go big for it. Sky, it's it's an interesting one. I, I thought for a while that I didn't think they had any room to grow, and I still don't think they really have a huge amount of room to grow because at the end of the day, there's only so much you can charge people on on a monthly basis. Yeah. Um, and and so if Sky were to ever lose the Premier League, the reality is that they turn from a content business to a utilities company overnight and their whole content business goes away and they just sell broadband and uh, Wi-Fi and, and mobile phone uh, coverage to, to people and that's kind of it. So it's it's a it's a strange time, I think, generally that there'll be a lot of change in that marketplace in the next few years. There's been a lot of talk, obviously, around the Premier League setting up their own channel, their own direct consumer proposition um, in the same way that you have the NFL network or NBA TV or League Pass or something like that. Um, but that's just a really, it's a really tricky thing to do, to do well. And you need a lot of cash up front because you have to, you know, if you're going to produce the whole thing, it it costs a lot of money. And the current model is such that there is no risk to the Premier League teams. They get a big check every year um, that's guaranteed income. And, you know, they know where they stand and that money continues to rise or at least stay flat. So it's not really in their interest to kind of threaten the status quo at the moment, um, unless one of the, the big players, whether it is a Google with YouTube or even Apple, if they want to get into the content game, Netflix have never really said that sports really of their interest. They're, they're sticking to comedy. And, yeah. No, but Amazon are, and they're doing, they're picking up a few more bits and pieces. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, they've got, they've got the cash that 10 billion a year for them. You know, if they, if they suddenly came in and went, we want the, exactly right. If they suddenly came in and went, we want the lot globally, his 10 billion a year, the Premier League, it would be half of this turned down. And, you know, they've got the cash to, to do that, but it's not quite yet in their, uh, you know, in their plans from what I understand. But they're, 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 they're kind of hoovering up bits and pieces all the time. And They're doing some stuff the with next... Spurs, right? They're doing some stuff with Spurs on the retail side of things, trying to take over their retail shop. Yeah, there's some bits and pieces. I know that there's a couple of clubs that are starting to do their, their retail through them. Most most big teams work with um, fanatics on, on a lot of their kind of retail play. Um, but there are some interesting opportunities. I think a lot of, a large part of that, I mean, that's part of their, the Spurs' deal with Amazon, obviously, was around the, the, the content piece with the All or Nothing documentary. And the retail piece might be was a, a nice, nice little added extra on that. It's a huge opportunity moving forward, obviously, because the biggest thing that Amazon have is, is data and that ability to target the right customer based on so many different data points is quite scary as to what they do know. But it's, it's a positive in the sense that, you know, brands and, and, and clubs know that they could be spending their money really efficiently on targeting the exact right kind of person they want to target. And so for Spurs' point of view, they know that they can follow anyone that's seen their documentary. They can serve them with an ad to say, oh, we've seen you seen the, the doc. Would you like to buy a shirt, scarf, hat, whatever? Here's how you can do it. Click here. And that's that's kind of the, 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 the kind of end goal is to try and move people through that process. Yeah, the, uh, the, the documentaries that they're running, I mean, they must be working because uh, Amazon just keep on churning them out, right? They're all over the world now. They're in rugby, Leeds, uh, the Dortmund one. Uh, I, I couldn't really work out what the overall benefit to Spurs was, unless it was a branding play. It didn't. I'm not sure. That well, it, that's it. It's, it's a, a branding play, play. particularly 
particularly in the States. And there's money, there's cash, right? I don't know exactly what they would have got for it, but it's probably, you know, eight figures, if not high seven figures that they would have got for that. So it's a great commercial, you know, revenue generator. It's a great branding play. You know, Amazon is a brilliant logo to put on your pitch documents that you're sending out to brands that we're a partner with Amazon. Come work with us. Um, And it's a great tool to try and reach an American audience. Um, which you know Amazon still has a, a great opportunity you know to reach those those things. That's is no different to what you know Man City did three or four years ago, and and Juve and everyone else that's kind of been in that space. It's it's about growing your global brand in as positive a light as as possible. Now, you know you could argue whether the recent Spurs one was a, a Spurs doc or a, or a Jose doc, but but yeah. you know at the end of the day, it, it it to an extent did kind of what they wanted it to do. Unfortunately, I don't think the, the results on the field helped the narrative in the same way that maybe it did with Man City when they won the league at Canter. Yeah, it's a bit like doing um, an end-of-season video in real time. If, if at the end, all or nothing, there's nothing, it's not, not, not yeah. really going to go back in there to watch it again. So let's, um, let's shift gears. Let's talk about, uh, you know, you, you worked at Manchester City. Uh, you've probably said hello to Mikel Arteta before 39th birthday this week painfully young um what's uh what's your thoughts on the the, the overarching narrative at the moment of, of Mikel Arteta and what he's doing at Arsenal how do you feel yeah I, I wish I could say we were big mates uh, uh unfortunately mates. I passed in no not, not yet still working on it still working on it. you never know there's still time but um no, I, I remember he um, he came and spoke actually at an all-staff event probably about three years ago. So it was probably about six to nine months before he was rumoured to be getting the Arsenal gig first time around. And I just came away from that hugely impressed as to, you know, his communication skills, but also it was a bit of a, a kind of a tactics demo to a whole host of, you know, 500-year-old people of, of varying football understanding levels. And he just came across as a very well kind of put together, smart individual. And so I was pretty gutted when he didn't get the gig first time around. I think, I don't think it's any secret that he thought he was getting it. And I think he'd probably said his goodbyes at, at City, um, thinking that he was in with a good shout, if not more. So I was, you know, thankfully relieved when, when he did kind of appear second time around. Um, generally I'm, I'm hopeful and, and kind of, positive about the direction that everything is going with the club I'm not a kind of a one-eyed fan I like to think I'm pretty kind of level-headed and don't get too high or too low with with everything and look at the kind of trends rather than individual results and performances and I just think generally you can see that there is a structure a plan a direction and there is progress I think ultimately as a football fan every year you go into it you just want to see progress you know, you're not going to win the league every year. You just want to ensure that you're better than you were the previous year. And um, I think that in order to do that, there were a lot of wrongs that needed to be righted. Uh, there were a lot of liabilities within that squad that needed to be turfed out or at least worked out. And I think a large part of the last 12, 18 months has been trying to do that, whether that is selling players on, which they've finally been able to get rid of laugh, you know, a load of them in the recent window, or coaching and educating other players out of their mistakes and bad habits. I think one of the challenges has been through this COVID hit period is that, you know, Arteta was seen really as the coach first and foremost. 
And the challenge is that he's not been given much time to do any coaching because of the condensed season. They don't really have any training days. They're playing, they're recovering, and then they have one day preparing for the next game. And so that's been a real challenge, I think, for him, where his ultimate skill set isn't able to be maximised. And so you hope that moving forward, if he gets a full pre-season ahead of him and players that he can help to develop, that they will really make some strides. But I am heartened by what's going on. And I actually think that a lot of the, uh, the poor results were explainable through just some horrendous luck on his part in the sense that it was this combination of complete brain farts from players, whether that was discipline-wise or performance-wise. You know, his very first game, I think, was home to Chelsea. They played brilliantly for 80 minutes. Leno came out and made a complete hash of a cross and they lost the game 2-1. You know, the combination of um, David Luiz getting sent off three times in about 10 games through, you know, mistakes, whether they were mentally or physically. Um, you know, Xhaka got sent off twice through poor discipline. Pepe got sent off from poor discipline. And in each of those games, they, they effectively lost all those games as a result of those situations. And there haven't really been many games where we've been completely played off the park. They've been in pretty much every game apart from City at home, I think it was, where they, it was a non-starter from the start. Yeah. But aside from that, they've been pretty, you know, solid and you can see where they're going and he kind of seems to take the decision from the start that will work from the back forward. And you can't argue, and I'm sure the stats back up, that defensively they're a lot more solid than they were previously and that things are starting to improve going forward as well and they've got rid of some of those issues where the kind of you know those liabilities have been removed from the team and there seems to be some progress moving forward yeah i, I agree it's it, there's um you know everybody needs to be part of a counter response um online these days but 10th and 9th in the table is not good enough by arsenal standards but i think if you if you only view performance through the lens of table position given the context of Arsenal, given the context of a pandemic, I think you're missing a trick. I mean, if like if if he finally got the players that he needed um, Christmas time, if you look at where we're, how we're performing since Christmas, we're in a, the top two or three across most metrics, goal scores, goals conceded, um, points total. Um, I think if we beat Liverpool, um, we go level points with United in second place. I mean, I don't think anybody's expecting us to catch Manchester City, but I think your original point is Arsenal fans just want to see progress and Arsene Wenger was getting top four, but he never moved beyond top four. It never looked like he was trying to address the problems that were keeping him just as a top four side. Unai Emery might have been very close to making top four in his first season, but the eye test didn't, didn't, it didn't pass with the eye test. You know, we were porous. Uh, there was no style there, no identity. And I think the you know, Mikel Arteta, like the football is pretty entertaining now. You know, the, since Christmas, it's it's sexy football, but we're still solid. You know, we're playing. You know, people can make comp videos over the last three months that are enjoyable to watch. And uh, you know, if we can carry that that shift in performance through to next season, like I definitely think that we'll be there or thereabouts when it comes to top four. But, you know, a lot of other teams are probably going to get better next season. I do not expect to see Liverpool four points behind us at this stage next year. I don't know. There's, there's a few things. I think, so on the Liverpool thing, first of all, you have to remember that, that it, it's kind of 
Klopp's MO a little bit, that he has a kind of three-year cycle with his teams. And then because he works them so hard, they fall apart. This happened at Dortmund. It's happened here at Liverpool where they just break down. And so they need to obviously reinvest in in a big squad to to try and make that up. Going back to your point about Wenger and and progress, I think it's it's interesting that I remember going to the the first cup final they won against Hull in whatever year that was. Going into that game, you know, genuinely not knowing whether I wanted us to win or lose because you knew that if if he lost, that would be it. They wouldn't get another contract. And if he won, you'd be signing up for three or four years of the same. And so, and that's ultimately what happened. And it was, the writing was on the wall for a long period there. And Emery was effectively the inverse Arteta, that the results were completely masking the performances. Yeah. And you could see that trend in where the team were going and the club were going. And some of that maybe was driven from the people above him and the whole nature of the club. And I do think that actually what is going on on the field with Arteta is somewhat being mirrored off the field, that it does seem to be progress within the organization as a whole in where they're going commercially infrastructure wise everything else that it does seem to be the start of the next phase of the club and you would hope and expect that with resources they have and hopefully the kinds of people that they have on board that they would be able to translate that into results in all areas and they seem to be now it's it's bizarre that it happened halfway through a season rather than at the start of a season but it does seem to be moving in the right direction. And you're right, that you do hope that, again, with the continuation of the squad development, of moving on the three or four they need to move on and replacing them with half-decent players of the right stature and age profile and uh, you know psychological makeup, whatever you want to call it, that that will... Logic tells you that things should continue to move in that space. Yeah, you just got to hope that... Uh, and, uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff... You know, we're looking at Martin Odegaard and we're saying, is, is, that, is, is that the formula for the summer? Young player, uh, not getting game time, exceptional talent, high ceiling. Or are we going to end up signing Mo Elneny, David Luiz, and putting in a 400 grand a week contract to get Sergio Aguero to turn down Barcelona? I think that that's... We'll, we'll know what the playbook is. And it, I'm, I'm, but I am almost certain that they won't make the same mistakes again. I mean, I know Sergio almost. Aguero is... Uh, almost. You know, like, I watched the press conference and Arteta starts talking about special qualities and you're like, oh, no, he was saying the same things about um, William before he signed. But, you know, if we have a good, if we have a, a good summer, um, get a good right back, which it sounds like the intel from Henry Winter's AST conversation is that a, a top right back is on the agenda. Uh, you, you sign a really good centre midfielder to partner with Thomas Partey um, and then move on some players that don't have the right character attributes. I mean, David Luiz for me is, you know, epitomises that. Like on his day, brilliant. When it's when it's not a game he fancies, absolutely terrible. But if we if we are ruthless this summer and we you know we continue signing players like Martin Odegaard we are a top 4 contender next we're already playing like a top 4 team in my opinion but keep everyone fit next season and it could be exciting yeah I, I couldn't agree more i think the the right back noises are encouraging i think it's what what will be fascinating is the decisions that are made around the center halves and yeah. who stays who goes and that will say i think that will kind of epitomize the whole squad building somewhat um and again you hope that the 
the hopefully kind of stretched out season rather than a condensed season will allow them to develop some of the players they've got in-house um, and and bring them onto the level they want. You do wonder that if they, this wasn't a condensed season, whether the Saliba situation would have happened in the same way or whether or not they would have had time to work with him and develop him to the point where you know he would have been used in the Europa League and then actually made his way into the team later on in the season. It's also um, going to be interesting with the money, right? What is Are, the, are clubs going to be bargain hunting? Are people going to be spending money? Because... Not a lot of money shifted hands last year, but I'm 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 warming to the idea that Erling Haaland is talking that he's at, his dad's at Barcelona or Madrid. Yeah. Like the the hopefully the the money mechanics because it really it starts with clubs like Manchester City as well, right? City, Madrid, Chelsea start the ball rolling to shift the money all around Europe. And the, I know Chelsea spent a lot of money last summer, but there are a lot of clubs that usually spend that didn't. Yeah, I think that. You know, obviously, this last twelve months—it's more uncertainty than anything else. I think that once once we now know that the game's coming back, that fans are going to be in, that they can start to go back to their original kind of financial forecasts, then I think we'll be in a pretty similar space than we would have been two years ago with, you know, general budgets that are flying around. Um, the challenge is what what do Arsenal want to be? And I know you've spoken a lot previously about the kind of overall project and being a kind of um, Dortmund plus or, or Leipzig plus in that sense around having this real identity of we want to be renowned as the developers of talent from great talent to uber talent if you like and we want to we want to we want to be selling players for 200 million at the end of the day but but having success on the field that you can generate through having a squad of players that are you know, at the coming towards the peak of their careers, and and it's about cashing out at the right time when you can, and holding on to the rest. I'm 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 more concerned, if I'm honest, around what's going on at the top end of the field with the makeup of the squad and the decisions that need to be made. And again, are they going to be hamstrung by the mistakes that have been made over the last eighteen months or so? Um, because you know, in an ideal world, they basically need to find another number nine that fits in with the way, the style of playing because the two guys they've got at the moment, one is out of contract in a year's time and the other is your captain and top scorer, but actually isn't really suited to playing as a number nine in that structure and, and makeup of the team. So they've got some very hard decisions to be made around what the, the long-term plan is. Is it Martinelli? Is it someone else? What does that look like? Is it Haaland? It might be Haaland. But is it, is it someone of, is it someone of that kind of skill? He's buy- well, people forget that, right? It's only it's 60 mil is the buyout clause. That's why he went to Dortmund, which is genius yes. from uh, yeah, yeah. Raiola. At the moment. But yeah, and he wants 600 grand a week to to, to sign on somewhere. But um, uh, yeah, we need to kind of, I think that's the big challenge. Yes, don't get me wrong. They need a right back. They need a centre half. They need a dynamic midfielder. But until they figure out, are they going to be kind of, tactics driven or personnel driven with who they select up front that for me is the biggest challenge for them and the kind of makeup of the squad yeah there's um it's just, it's, it, we're never selling obama yang and really we should after yeah. you know the, the season that he's had um i think the you know some of the positives are um we, arteta this season has played a lot of players into transferable contention you know like Mustafi was almost impossible to shift this summer. He had to go on the website to apologise for being so terrible. 
Um, but now Jacka could get a move to a good club if somebody came in. Lacazette will get picked up by somebody at some point if we don't want him this summer. And Hector Bellerin should be fetching 30 million. I think my bigger concern is the Haylenders and um, some of the young players. Like Mateo's soiled his reputation again, and that was a 25, 30 million pound player last year. He's probably not going to fetch that now. Reese Nelson, I think most people in Europe have probably forgotten what talents he has because he's done nothing. Eddie Nketiah, 30 million in January, supposedly. Like, is he going to fetch that after playing no games again? It's going to be, um, I think it's going to be sell before you buy. Um, but it will be an interesting summer because if, if Edu can't do it this year, I don't see him surviving much past you can't. You can't forget, though, the value of homegrown English, English players. Right. You know, you've only got to look at Rian Brewster from Liverpool, who had done nothing, went to Sheffield United for well over 20 million quid. You know, Eddie Nketiah, for, for whatever he has or hasn't done for Arsenal, is the England under 21 top scorer of all time. You know, and, and so there, there will be an inherent value there for Premier League teams that want to build around a dynamic forward. Um, Brighton would not be in the position they're in if they had Eddie and Ketia. Yeah. Right? I mean, he'd be such a good signing for them. They just yeah. got no one that can finish. And they're, they're, they're so good at feeding balls in, high-quality balls. Like a player like Eddie would just thrive off of that. So I'd be interested to see whether he takes the move there. But I just hope that um, I hope that we don't end up keeping a bunch of the homegrown players just to be like squad fluffers. I don't really feel that that's an elite, elite mindset or the sort of thing that you want hanging around the club. I'm hoping that players like Matt Smith can pick up where Joe Willock maybe can't um, and that we can start to plug the gaps and, and move that generation on. But at least they're all getting careers now, right? Yeah, but the the, 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 the danger obviously is you have a Balogun situation and, and that's the one for me is the key is everything I've seen, which admittedly is not huge, but everything I've seen has been hugely impressive. He's the, the profile of player that would perform very well in the, the setup of the side that we have. And, you know, he's baffling that he's not been involved more in matchday squads and getting game time and, you know, building again, whether it is in the same way, right, to keep him or not, but you need to build up his, his value one way or another to the squad. And it's it's quite concerning that, you know, I would be playing him over in Ketia all day long. I just think he offers more as an around game um, and it could, could be a real interesting one moving forward. I wonder if he's just waiting on money or it's he's got a club lined up and he's just going to... I think it seems like Arteta's like, well, if you can't commit beyond June, why would I waste minutes on you? Seems to be the the vibe. Mm -hmm. Be a shame to lose out on him though because you know he's going to be good. He's going to be Serge Gabri, Mark II. Yes, and that is the big fear. And, you know, they they do need to be building around these players. It is obvious that, you know, the young players, the Haylenders, there is a culture there that, that can help drive the team forward. And then you really need to tap into that because that's been missing for a long time. Agree. All right, Rob, well, thank you uh, very much for joining. Do you want to um, like tell people where they can find you if they want to pick you up for some, uh, some football advice? <laughs> yeah, the company's called First Five Yards. Uh, you can find me on all the socials at, at Rob Gewertz or at First Five Yards. And yeah, thank you, Pete. It's been, been great. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. If you're listening to this, you know, the, you know, the deal, get on uh, iTunes, give me a five-star rating, say how great Rob was so we can have him back on at a later date. Um, and on that note, I'll see you later. Enjoy the game of the weekend. Ciao for now.
shows, movies, live sports, breaking news, exclusive originals. It's The Office. That's what she said. Chrisley knows best. It's going to be Todd's Way or the Highway. And Peacock original shows like Punky Brewster. Holy mackinole. So whether you're in the mood for every live WWE pay-per-view or every episode of Law & Order SVU, Peacock's got you covered. Peacock. Watch for free. Upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hello, I'm Greg Jenner. I'm the host of You're Dead to Me, and we are back for Series 5. Yes, it's the comedy show that takes history seriously. And on this series, get ready to hear about Frederick the Great of Prussia with Stephen Fry, no less. I'm just thrilled at this history lesson. Or learn a fair old amount, that's a pharaoh joke, about ancient Egyptian queen Hatshepsut with Kima Bob. What a vibe. And take a stitch in time as we discuss the Bayer Tapestry with Lou Sanders. Ooh, I'm a gog. Plus we have many other lovely historical subjects where we'll be joined by top historians. That's your Dead to Me with new episodes every Friday. Johnny good, isn't it? ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Sports Social Podcast Network.